Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. My kids in the Bronx, they were segregated more off of classic economics. So when they have to go to their local haunts, they will see people of color. It's not until they go to a bank or an office building where they even see white people. There's this scary other thing. But I feel my experience helped diminish that. My code switching has been my superpower, not the business facing switch when I go into the boardroom. It's the student facing voice when I go into the building. It's the difference between me walking into the classroom in Detroit. And instead of saying, good afternoon, students, I'm going to say, what up, though? And the kids make an immediate connection to that. My name is Chris Finn, and I am a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Roman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we're talking to Chris Finn, who is a senior education specialist and works at Anonymous Education Consulting Company. Chris is a past guest. We actually had him on our teacher panel a few months ago, and we had such a great conversation. We just wanted to have a one-on-one conversation, not just about his experiences as a teacher, but his experiences growing up as a black man in Jewish New Jersey. (laughs) I didn't even know that existed in the way that it did. (laughs) But he was... He was fantastic. He brought all his energy. He really, I think a lot of his experiences, his professional experiences and a lot of the impact that he's made on so many students and so many school districts has stemmed from his initial experiences being different from everybody else. And he's found a way to, I think, channel that to be able to bring people together with a deeper understanding of of finding ways to connect to folks. Yeah, I think he has this ability to to hear and see things from many, many different perspectives, which I think is really powerful in how he brings people together professionally. He's just a really good storyteller. And it turns out he's a rapper too, guys. So (laughs) that will come up later, but you definitely should check out the show notes. If you don't want to listen to this podcast, just go listen to Chris's music, which we have not yet listened to, but (laughs) you'll have to check it out. (laughs) Cool. Well, you know, you're going to learn a lot about his superpowers of speaking different languages. So, uh, we hope you enjoy our conversation with our friend, Chris. Hi, Chris. Thanks so much for coming back to our show. Thank you for having me back. Excited to be here. Excited to share. Yes, a lot going on. And 
I'm anxious to unpack some of it with you. Yeah. <laughs> we only have 45 minutes. <laughs> yeah. I started to make a grandiose statement and I peeled it. <laughs> this is part one of a 50 episode series with Chris Finn where we solve everything. <laughs> Lifetime episodes. So, Chris, last time we had you here, we talked about a lot of things going on in the world. And today we're going to focus a lot more on you. So, I would love if you could tell us about a story from your childhood. A story from my childhood. This one is interesting because it, I was actually asked this question a few days ago, and this one speaks to my intersectionality with kind of hip hop and race, and it, it, it's just seared into my memory. So this is one that's fresh. I grew up in Teaneck, New Jersey, at the time a very predominantly white Jewish town. I was born in 1971. This is now when I'm 13, so we're talking about 1984, right? And because it was and Chris, you, to cl- to clarify, you're not white or Jewish, right? I am not white or Jewish. I'm an African American <laughs> gentleman. I'm a black guy, an educator, and here's my Teaneck, New Jersey. Growing up, it's funny because Dave Chappelle has the joke. He says, when Nas and them start talking about the projects, he just kind of stays quiet, like, oh, yeah, yeah. Never telling that he's not from the projects, but never saying that he wasn't. And I have a similar tale, right? People assume things about you as an African American male, but I had a very privileged experience as a, as a young man. I'm the child of of two educators and grew up in Teaneck, New Jersey. And as a 13 year old now, I'm attending dozens of bar and bat mitzvahs, right? That's the wave. That's what's happening. And it's also the birth of hip hop in my life as well. And hip hop is playing a strong role in my culture, my development, my thinking, my love for music. And we go to this one young lady's bat mitzvah, and it's at a beautiful country club. And I'm probably one of maybe six Black people that are there of maybe 150 people or so. We're at a country club size bat mitzvah. And they put on some hip hop music real quick. Now, mind you, at the time, the whole wave, the music, they're playing Cindy Lauper and <laughs> Cheers sure. for Fears and Front. Like Vanessa and I were performing, we were getting right. paid. Like we were, we were going so hard. <laughs> and frankly, it wasn't until years later when I think back, forgive me for this tone, but there's a part of me that feels like we were almost the entertainment for five minutes there, right? It wasn't like any other Jewish kids jumped up and started breaking either. It was like we were the performers. And when we finished, there was this clapping and this patting on the back and this, oh, my God, you're so talented. And I love that like hippity hoppity rap thing. And it wasn't until years later that I felt the the impact of that or how that could have been perceived. And I'm telling you, on a dime, after we finished playing, after we finished dancing, they went directly back to Tears for Fears again. Mm-hmm. So it, this was by no means a hip hop party that was done specifically or strategically, or this is my lens, right? So that's an example of my childhood, my love for hip hop, right? Combined with being in a very unique experience where I was very much in a wealthy space, but still the minority. I don't know. Interesting layers there to to unpack. So Chris, how are you different or how are you the same from, from that time in your life? I think that it's all me. Whatever differences or whatever I've experienced, it's it's evolved into this space. Maybe I'm different in that I see it from a different lens, you know, from a maybe a more mature lens of a grown man who's now studied education and sociology and race. And I see it maybe in that way. I don't know how I'm a lot different than that, in that 
maybe my senses would be more keen to my surroundings or what's happening. And maybe I wouldn't be as so naive to those situations. I can probably count 10 more of those, you know, throughout my life and my career that when looking back on, I see differently now, I guess, just because what I've learned and how I've grown and developed as a person. Yeah. We actually had another guest mention that it's this idea of when you're in the moment, especially when you're a kid, you don't always see it for what it is. You, cause you're a kid, you're innocent. You don't, view the sure. world. You haven't or seen- how about how about when you're not a kid but you're just naive, right? So I'm a young teacher in the Bronx. I'm probably 24 years old. My sister asked me to start teaching, right? And I started subbing. My sister was another teacher in the building and very respected teacher, so I kind of came in under her wing. And I remember my second or third year teaching a white teacher who taught across the hallway from me. She stopped me one day after school. And I know this is classic. You've heard of Bobby, a thousand of these. But she gave me one of those. You're so articulate. Oh. And she actually said, you're so different. She said, you and your sister are so different. The way you carry yourselves, the way you speak, the way this. And I remember as a 24-year-old walking away from this veteran teacher who I thought had a great mind for teaching, I I was like elated. I was like, oh my gosh, she says I'm so smart and she thinks I'm bright. And wow, what a great compliment from this woman. And again, it wasn't until years later where I re-evaluate that situation and see, you know, see it from a different lens. Well, I want to ask that question from a weird angle. What would have been the right way for her to have paid you a compliment? Knowing what you know now, disrespected teacher, what should she have said in that moment? Maybe A, just the you're, you're so different. Maybe we'll edit that one, right? Because yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. What. So if we if I give her that one and take that one out. Chris, I'm asking the dumb question for our audience. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I mean, first, yeah, I'm saying first that one, but I'm trying to be, respond thoughtfully too, because I'm going to share another one with you. I want to respond thoughtfully too, because part of it is our bias too and how we grow and see things. Because there is a part of her that I think was genuinely trying to say to me, you're an incredibly bright young man, right? You're the way you connect with these kids is dynamic and watching you is like a pleasure, right? If I could, if I could sift through her lens, you know, biases as well, but some of that is me. So let me give you another one. Another teacher, this is over the past probably four years, I'm working in, let me just, I'll say the state of Kentucky I'm in, right? And as you can imagine, rife with all kind of racial disparities and what have you, teachers to students, what have you. And this one teacher, I'm delivering work on diversity and race and implicit bias and what have you. And it's really starting to take a, a stronghold in the school. People are starting to feel it. And I think I'm making a difference. This white woman who's been teaching for many years asked me to come to her room after school. She sits me down. She's so kind to me. And she says, she gives me her spiel. And I think she's telling me this story to kind of make herself closer to me. Like she's going to share with me something that's going to make me love her. And she said, I just want to share with you. I don't even have to teach right now. My husband is independently wealthy and I retired years ago and I don't even have to do this because I don't need the money and I'm still here. And I'll also tell you while I'm here, I'm so dedicated that when I was home, when I was retired and I was just taking care of my grandkids and relaxing, I was watching the TV and come to find out one of her former students had committed a murder in the town, right? And when she saw her son, her this student had become a murderer she said, 
I knew I had to come back to the classroom because I had to fight against this. And when I look at my kids, I look across the room and I think to myself, if I can just save one. So after this teacher shared this story with me about how she came back to teaching because she wanted to save the kids, from my lens, I felt she wasn't saying, look at this room at all these potential geniuses when she walks in in September. I feel like she's looking at the room like, here's this these group of potential murderers, and if I help turn one of them around then I will have done my duty as a teacher, right? I will have yeah. saved the place. Well, it's, a, it's the classic savior thing. It right. is the classic savior. The white but savior. Like the white savior. But my colleagues push back on me on that. And they're like, Mo- many educators get in into this business to help kids, to save kids. I'm literally making hand air quotes, the word save right now, because maybe that's the word that I had a problem with in her sharing. I mean, but there's some white savior in there for sure. But what I'm saying is I have to temper my own bias sometimes when hearing these things as well. And I want to look for the intention in what they're saying versus just the words. I guess I want to back up from some of these stories to back to kind of your intent. What did you want to be when you were growing up? Did you always know you want to be a teacher? No. Matter of fact, I didn't know for quite a long time, which I think also speaks to A, my privilege growing up in this suburban. I wasn't forced to think early what I wanted to do. And frankly, even through college, I went to Rutgers in New Brunswick. And frankly, I probably didn't know until my second year as a sophomore. And then I chose social work. And frankly, uh, I found myself towards the end of my college career just running from high-level math classes so I could get this degree in social work, right? That's the real story. So I didn't have a vision for myself in that way. I did do social work. I was a social worker, caseworker for two years. And as I mentioned earlier, my sister asked me to substitute in the Bronx and literally maybe second, third day, I was locked in. I knew my that's when my purpose kind of came to me was this education realm. What did your parents want you to be when you grew up? I think classic doctor, lawyer. I mean, so your parents were Asian. Got it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. By the way, that in itself, as I was saying it, because I made that joke a couple of times now, that's a bit of a microaggression too. Sorry, I'm just going to call myself out. So I want to apologize, but we don't have the monopoly on that. (laughs) No, we don't. And we're we're guilty of it. I'm going to double down on this and I hope I don't get any Asian kickback because I think it's a it's a positive stereotype. But my wife and I are sitting in the, the arena when our daughter goes to this specialized high school. And it's the first day, like the inaugural day. And the more and more Asian students show up, the more excited we yeah. are. Well, oh, yes, this has to be the high level program because that's what we deem. So it could be a microaggression. It could also be a subtle, envious compliment about academic prowess because two things can be true at the same time, right? To kind of put on my little virtue signaling badge, the new daycare my daughter's in, in the part of Connecticut we're in, it's the least diverse. There aren't any Black kids in her classroom. She is the only Asian kid. And that worries me. And that stresses me out. Not, never mind the all the studies that show diverse groups perform better together, right? Tons of studies about that. So there's that selfish concern that I have. But the bigger concern I have is the fear I I grew up in a similar situation in Alabama and feeling left out, feeling different. I've come to embrace that in my adulthood. Dude, the first 20 years Mm -hmm. of my life sucked because of that, right? My own internal- The odd one out like everywhere, right? Knowing you don't fit in, knowing what we do is different versus different okay because everybody's different. Right. Yeah. I 
worry about that. I think about that a lot more now. You talk about your child being in this environment that's very white. I'm doing a lot of reflection. And I find that when my wife and I go away, I'm not the guy who likes roughing it and the camping and sleeping on the ground and that type of stuff. I definitely want some like schmancy. I want a spa treatment. <laughs> yeah. Whatever. You're like Sharon. For sure. <laughs> I'm just, yeah. You, you and I are, you and I are soulmates. Yeah. We, I mean, come on. When my friends yeah. just recently, they're like, let's, we, let's go camping and let's do this. I'm like, eh. I know. Like, why would I want to do that? <laughs> why would I want to sleep on the ground? Now, trust, I've been a Boy Scout and all those things. And I did have those adventures, slept in the tents and all that. But why would I want to do that to myself? But right. to, to, the, to the earlier point, now when we vacation and go places and go, we're in spaces that are so white. Mm. You know what I mean? And I know right. you could just easily say that's, you know, it's economic, right? It's, it's It costs more to go here. So there's going to be less people of color here. But but it, it's been striking to us, right? We go to DR, go to a resort, like mostly white. We go to Jamaica, go to a resort, mostly white. We go to even Western New Jersey, Schmancy Hotel Spa, like all white. Well, there's yeah. a Chris Rock bit. I just, he was on Colbert the other night and he literally said, he has a thing about when you go to the DR, from the moment you land in the airplane, as you're driving to the resort, you see what it really is. And then you yes. get to the resort. That's right. a fact. Right. And like sometimes, I mean, once we went to Puerto Rico and it felt like we had gone to Puerto Rico to escape Puerto Rico, right? Like we were literally on a resort that had a steakhouse, an Asian restaurant, a burger place. It's like we're in Puerto Rico, but we're on a resort where we don't see any native people. And it's like the American version of Chinese food is what mm -hmm. we're serving. <laughs> Another question along kind of some of the themes that we've been talking about. We all have to do things to fit in at work. I hate to use the term code switching, but it's an accurate kind of summary of what it is. And again, we're all further on in our careers and our, we're more comfortable in our own skin than we probably were in younger years. But in those early years, the 20-year-old man teaching in the Bronx coming up through the education system, what were some of the things that you had to do to fit in? Oh, man. I definitely want to get to the end point because where I am now is, is in such a unique space. But yes, in my early days, I mean, code switching was, I mean, forget when I worked. I told you I grew up in this all white town. My life has been how to navigate these spaces. I would be invited over to a lot of my Jewish friends' houses, family, family's houses for dinner. How do I navigate in that space? How do you move here? Oftentimes, I have said that my kids in the Bronx when I was a teacher, they were segregated more off of classic economics. So when they have to go to the check cash and spot the bodega, their local haunts, they will see predominantly people of color. It's not until they go to like a bank or an office building or somewhere where they even see white people. And I would note that my students would see white people as this scary other thing. Those white people, there are white people. But I feel my experience helped diminish that, right? I didn't see them as this scary monolith or this scary other thing. It, it was just some other thing I had to navigate through. But yes, the code switching was heavy early in teaching. You have to speak incredibly articulate. You have to be smarter than the person next to you. You have to know your lessons forward and backwards so as not to be deemed the lazy black teacher or what have you. But then with my students, I could always make a really unique connection. I have felt throughout my career that my kind of code switching ability has been my superpower. And the stronger part is not the business facing switch that I make when I go into the boardroom. It's the student facing or teacher facing voice when I go into the building. That's unique. 
and a lot of people don't have that the ability to communicate with the students like that. And what do you mean by that exactly? I mean, it's the difference between me walking into the classroom in Detroit and knowing that I'm going to say, instead of saying, good afternoon, students, I'm going to say, what up, though? Yeah. You know what I mean? That's Detroit slang. I know that when I went to D.C. and I walk into a classroom and I could tell a kid, yo, Camille, yo, what's really popping? You bang with your mans in them, but now y'all having beef and I'm trying to make it pop between the both of y'all. And I can speak a language that many of my colleagues can't. And it, it it's like my superpower. The kids make an immediate connection to that. And it's been super powerful in my career. You I, I got to ask a question there, though, Chris, because and I say that this is my ageist, not my racist comment. <laughs> How do you keep up with it? Because whatever the kids said five years ago is very different today. So that's the truth. And how I do you mean, keep so, up with hey, that? So they're not like, so, hey, old man. <laughs> exactly. Well, let me not make make it claim that I have not ever caught the old man. Right. Okay, <laughs> good, I, have, good. I have not always been on point. <laughs> I'm not always I'm not gonna walk into the class though with like what's the dealio kids? Like I'm not I'm not gonna get caught. You're not Carlton, I, got it. That's correct. Good. But I have been known to not be a hundred percent on point. But frankly, part of it is just that I'm a child of hip hop, a product of hip hop. It's in my blood, it's in my DNA, like everything else is in me. And the other thing is that it is regional. Working now for Cambridge and I've traveled, I've been able to work with schools around the country and there is something regional. You have to be aware, like in Chicago, I can't say what up folk, right? There's a real gang family thing that they'll ask you questions and test you and you be a victim if you're not aware. So there's layers to it. Some of it maybe is born out of me needing to protect myself too. So interesting. I used the word dope the other day. That's still in. That's still good. Come on. I think so, but that it wasn't received well. Yeah, I, they're like, are you making fun of me? Or are you yeah, using like, ironic? Wait, shit? what are you saying? So I can't uh, pull it off the way you do, Chris. But but let's say, but let's say though, that beyond that is also teaching those students that although we can communicate in that frequency or on that wavelength, we don't have to live there, right? We have to be able, I mean, once upon a time, I saw a teacher in Chicago and she was teaching it, she called it cash language. I mean, she was teaching it like a class to her students. And really, she was teaching code switching, but she called it cash language. Now, A, the students love that, right? You can, right. That, that's kind of fly to say that. And B, she was like, this is the language you use when you want to go and obtain cash. This is the language of currency. When you go to a job interview, when you go to a wow. bank, she taught it that specifically. And watching her do it like that was powerful. Like there isn't a class for that. You have to learn that on the fly. But she she built it into her curriculum. And how powerful was it for her students, right? So Chris, the last time we spoke, and if anyone hasn't gotten the chance to listen to like our educators episode, we brought you on because a friend of mine who teaches at the Bronx or works in education in the Bronx, I should say, recommended we have a chat with you for your perspective because you've seen education from so many different angles. And at the time we were talking about the reopening of schools in the midst of this pandemic we're still living through. And I think that's just so there are not enough episodes to talk about all the issues in education. My mom's a teacher, some of Sharon's best friends are teachers, et cetera. But I guess we're in a really interesting moment for education. And I say that We've always been in a really interesting moment, but this pandemic has exacerbated all the fault lines and all the problems in our Western society. And 
I don't feel like it's getting better with schools right now. Like what are the, there's probably too many to count. What are the problems that we're facing right now that are unique, that are exacerbated right now? Okay, you said what are the problems we have now, but then earlier you said this show is only an hour, so you didn't. <laughs> what are the biggest things you're hearing? Because you're consulting with teachers all around the country. Yeah, yeah. And I'm going to share with you my lens, and this is this is broad, and it's maybe like from the helicopter view. Please. But through this this space, I have. Let's be really frank. I'm even walking myself through this. Through the pandemic, I'm working in schools in Massachusetts, all up and down New York, Newark, New Jersey, Kentucky. Texas, Ohio, Virginia, Baltimore, right? Those are the clients like I currently have. And what I'm seeing is that the districts, and there are very few of these, actually two of all the ones I've mentioned to you, two, they're the districts that are kind of swallowing the pill that this is going to impact us a great deal academically. So we need to shift into supporting the social and emotional welfare of our students. Those are the districts that are making strides and that I believe will only see this as like a speed bump, right? Because they're consciously shifting away from let's shove seven hours of instruction and 50 papers and 17 essays. They're, they're not just trying to get to push through the content. They are consciously making a decision to say, okay, we're going to peel back here. We're going to open up spaces for discussion. We're going to increase opportunities for counseling. We're going to have places where students and parents can share. Those are the districts, in my opinion, right now that are winning. The districts that are really not winning are the districts that are trying to do this business as usual. Let's just keep doing this, continue with the content, continue with the curriculum, keep the kids doing this, keep them busy, keep them this. They're failing miserably, one. Their kids are imploding, two, right? Their teachers are imploding, three. And the chasm that I foresee in the academic bump here is going to impact us forevermore. Even for my daughter, they waived the SATs for her. That's a drastic peelback from the expectations of education, but because of the pandemic. Anyway, my point is that the districts that are making a conscious decision to address the social emotional needs of students, I think are going to win in the long run. And there are very few of those in my work. Well, so the last time we spoke, I feel like it was the summer and schools are reopening. And the thing that drove me to want to do the episode was our administration, brutally honest, failed so many aspects of this pandemic, but they just kind of ignored that schools were going to have to reopen until it happened. It was a very just-in-time response where no one was equipped. And we're in a new year. We will have a new administration who will hopefully try to provide some competent guidance. What would you say, and this is a question I ask on a different podcast, but I guess you have such a unique vantage point, having been in the system, consulted with a lot of different education systems of all different sizes. What's the advice you give the new administration, the new secretary of education who's coming in? What do the people on the ground need, those districts? Because obviously people are solving it at a local level, but what does federal help look like for education beyond just money, I guess? Yeah, I think on the ground, it looks like more of what I was sharing. It's like we need their stats around how many counselors a school has per student. You know what I mean? And, and like their average, you're supposed to have like 110 or something, 120 
students per school counselor. And there are schools with like 740 kids per school counselor, right? So I, I feel like in this era, students have more to share. That Look at what they're seeing literally on social media. I mean, in the world, in things that are actually happening, that if they don't have the opportunity to unpack, it's going to negatively impact their own personal psyche, but then academics just falls by the wayside. A lot of our kids are in such a space, they're like, work. You asking me to do like, my grandfather just died. I got six people here, two computers. So I think I think the counseling piece and those wraparound services need to enhance the districts that are in most need. And I think we, this is harder to attack, but there's something that lives within teacher expectation and their expectation of students that I think is severely lacking. And we need training, support, professional learning around that as well. It's a mindset shift, not just a financial you know, shift. So it's like more a more holistic solution. It's not just about the obvious metrics. I agree. I mean, that's, my, that's really my soapbox, right? You really want me to get going. It's like I, I took a school in Newark. I was principal of a school. I signed my contract in July got a letter in August that said we were on probation, right? I had this vision for my school of being this really fly, like liberal arts K-8 to school. And in the first two years, it wasn't. We very much had to almost be like a testing factory to to get out of probation. And then we did have things like African dance and tap, and we made it there. But I will tell you, it is not. it was not myself or like numbers that shifted it. It was a mindset shift in the building. We actually aligned with a program called the Efficacy Institute out of Harvard, and it's about a growth mindset. And as corny as that sounds, it's like even my adults were using that to adapt it to their own lives. And within two years, we were off probation. And I know it wasn't just great instruction that did that. It was a mindset shift. So that's where, I mean, I literally put my money in when I was a school leader. And that's frankly where where I would put money now. All right, Chris, I got to shift gears a little bit to the personal life. My mom was a teacher. She's retired. And it was the coolest and worst thing ever as a kid. Because one, I had homework on the weekends and homework in the summers. And my mom knew all my teachers. Two, my mom was like a local celebrity. We couldn't go to the Winn-Dixie without running into another parent and or a kid. And Everyone knew my mom, but mom couldn't remember half the people. I'd be like, mom, who was that? So you're a pretty big deal in the education space. You came up in your community as well. How do you interact with the community as a teacher beyond wow. just school? That's a great one. So going to school now, my wife and I are both educators. My sister's a school principal. Mom was a special. It's in the blood. It's, it's in the it's blood. In us. Dad was is there. So what was interesting, particularly when I was serving as a school principal, I would be very conscious when I go to like back to school night to meet my daughter's teachers, I would not mention it, right? Because early on when I I first was in the position, I would say that to a teacher and they would immediately get skittish and be very guarded. Like, oh my God, he's a principal. He might know someone. (laughs) So I am very much in my daughter's lives. I'm very much not the principal, right? I go to school, I go to speak to the teachers as like Joe dad, right? Now, mind you, some of the questions I ask will will reveal that I know a great deal about education, but I don't come in touting that I know better than you, right? I want to be like the next door neighbor dad and just, I want the best for my- You're a member of the PTA. (laughs) Well, actually I'm not physically, but but my- No, but you come off as that. That's the vibe, correct. And my wife genuinely was 
the member of the PTA or the head of the PTA for my oldest daughter's school for about three years. So that really did happen. You making your kids do homework on the weekends? No, we're not as crazy at home. Well, let me first and let me let me give the umbrella the umbrella statement that my daughters have not yet given me cause to go <laughs> ham. Right answer. Cool dad answer. Cool dad. Yeah, I'm so serious. <laughs> I'm keeping it a buck though. Like once upon a time, we had to get in Maya's behind my oldest about math. That was probably 10th grade, but she's a senior year. She's a senior now. She's already been accepted to Hampton University. That's her first choice school. So she's gone. Can't be mad at that. And my youngest is on, is like the super A type. She's been on honor roll or principal's honor roll literally for like seven years. She's in, she's going to high school now. So I haven't had to get on them really about the academics as much. I've been blessed. That's fascinating. As a parent, I find that I turn into literally the classic stereotypical tiger mom. Yeah. Like I am such a tiger mom. Okay. And my kids are my kids are little. They're six and eight. They're adding and subtracting and learning how to spell words. Yeah, gotcha. I'm like I'm like, you have to do your homework. You gotta do your 15 minutes of reading. If they're ever late with stuff, they get in trouble. It's not playing. Mom is not playing. And mom is not playing. I'm not that way. I'm not a, I'm not that way. It's so interesting. <laughs> I'm not as much. Now, my wife has a little tiger mom in her blood, too. But yeah, I don't I don't give it up like that. So so your, your partner is a teacher as well. How are you guys different? Do you have different styles or kind of like are there different modes of Kung Fu? Are there different teachers? <laughs> wow, that's a great analogy. Yes, I prefer tiger style. My wife, <laughs> my wife is more Shaolin monk. But <laughs> frankly, yes, we're very different in our styles. She's a technology teacher. I am not great with technology. So there's that. She teaches younger students. She, she's in a K to six. It's in the North Bronx. She's been there for years. She now has her admin cert and everything. And we're just thinking if she even wants to go into administration in this very tumultuous time. At one point, I'll say the one interesting split or the, the difference we had was that once upon a time, I was a charter school principal. And there's still so much debate on charter versus public, right? Even when I say versus, it it, it's, it rubs me in a weird way. Wait, you'd say why versus? I mean, I understand that why it's loaded, but why is versus loaded? Because we're public schools. You know what I'm saying? Like I was a charter school principal and I'm a public school principal too, right? I can move a little more autonomously, right? Because I don't have to kind of I was in Newark. So Newark has 60 something schools. If they make a decision for their 60 something schools, it has you need a act of Congress to get something moved. As a principal of a charter school, I just had to convince my board. And if we had the funds, we could do it. And we actually got less per child than a public school gets if we break it down to the nitty gritty dollar. But there is this air, particularly some of the more corporate charters, that they like feed on the impoverished community. They're almost the vampires of education, right? Hence, after Katrina in New Orleans, it's like 97% of the schools are charters and they're corporate charters, meaning when they hit town, they can't, it's not like they're just saying, hey, we want to open up a school and like rub two sticks together. They could buy two blocks of property, right? And turn that into a, a campus. Then now kids are going there. Now kids don't have to pay. So it's still a public school, but they can govern themselves a little differently. So when we were public school teaching wife and charter school administrator, we had interesting conversations about those, those lines. 
So that was interesting. So Chris, you've you've talked about a lot that you've experienced and that you've actually contributed to the world as well. And I'm just wondering if you could go back to who you were back in Teaneck, New Jersey, maybe back to that Cindy Lauper dance floor, what would you tell yourself? I would tell myself, see, I'm in a, it's, it's, those questions are tough because I feel like I'm in a great space now. And then there's the classic, if you go back and tell Doc about someone's <laughs> It's going to change everything. Right. So if if I could just maybe bolster young Christopher a little bit more, tell him be brave in these tough situations. Don't second guess yourself when you're just following your heart and where you believe you should go. Maybe I would have even said go into education earlier because it's something you're passionate about and you can you can make a great impact. I would have told them, don't get that haircut. <laughs> now we need pictures <laughs> yeah the, the prom haircut was a little extra i definitely had the kid and play flat top that's so funny so there's some advice for him that actually leads me to my next question but first i don't know sharon what do you think you think chris is ready for speed round i think you've earned a speed round chris dun, dun, <laughs> speed round <laughs> We don't even have to insert the music now. You did it. Perfect. (laughs) Well, Chris, my question was going to be, what's something about you no one expects? So beyond the kid and play part. Frankly, no one expects that I can rhyme incredibly well and that I'm also an MC and I've put music out as well. I recently just dropped my most recent album. It's called No Beast So Fierce. And it came out on December 18th. And my rap moniker is Big Zoo, B-I-G-Z-O-O. So all of the listeners who hear me now via this education lens <laughs> definitely peep my rap lens. All right. Well, you Big have to send Zoo. us some links. Yeah. We need SoundCloud. We need Spotify. Send us that so we can put it in the show notes. A hundred percent. And congratulations. That's so exciting. Yes. What is a book, movie, or a show? with characters that you can relate to that you'd recommend? Characters that I can relate to. Just my faves are popping in my brain. So let me just pivot there. And and it sounds like it's been said time and time again, but I love The Wire. The Wire. Mm-hmm. Best is, show in the world. Yeah. yeah. Well, stop. Thank you. Thank you. That We don't even have to say anything else. <laughs> well, you know, no, I, I want to pivot there. The first time I watched it, I actually thought, Actually, never mind. But what I was going to say, season four is arguably the most powerful one. And Come on. you know why season four? Come on. Season four brings it home with education. Education. Like it's the education season. And you know what's so crazy? This is a true story. Literally, during the time when I was watching that show, there was a school I was working with that was doing kind of what they were doing in the show, where they kind of create the random room at the end of some hallway. And they're just like, every kid that misbehaves, just throw them there. Because A, we can at least teach the other kids, right, was their, was their philosophy, and they'll do less damage. And there was a school literally doing that while the show was on. I was, I was, it was too real. I have to plug the wire a little bit because David Simon, the creator, a journalist, it's his love letter to America, but it's about all the failings of America. And so the first season's about municipal politics, the second one about unions and labor, the third one. Oh gosh, I'm a, I'm losing it. But season four, one of them was the education, and then the last one was the empire, was the newspaper. Yep, journalism. But season four, which arguably is the most powerful one, a friend told me when I was starting to watch it, he was like, "As soon as you finish season four, 
go back and rewatch the first episode of season four because it tracks these these young kids, kids yeah. and you just see them become harder to the world and you go back to the first episode and they're so innocent and i have to bring that up because it's it's something i would imagine you see in the world right oh 100 percent. i mean i see oh man that one i'm getting goosebumps now literally because i mean being an educator and, and that connection is so powerful but i do i see it so often i see horror stories too and the sad part is when i started this job even flying around the country, working in schools like hard body schools, Chicago, this, I would find myself whenever I get with my colleagues, I would be compelled to tell the horror stories, right? I'm telling you like the worst of it. And I made a decision probably two years ago that as I travel, I want to share those success stories as much, right? They're not as salacious. They're not as like, oh my goodness. But in essence, they are. It's success stories that will, they're so compelling. They'll make you shed a tear. So I do see it all the time, and I see that innocence, sadly, lost in a lot of our kids. Well, I'd love to have you back for an episode where we can talk about some of the the happier stories, honestly. For sure, for sure. What's your favorite mom dish? That they cook? Something your mom made that you love, you still think back on. Here's another ringer for you. Chris Finn has a mom who can't cook. (laughs) (laughs) What's your favorite dad dish, then? This is great. My father passed away in 18, but this is great. He used to make this thing that he called, and it's a dish that he made called cabla mabla. He did this throughout my whole childhood. He would make some pasta, and then he would take whatever leftovers were in the fridge and throw them in the pasta. So it could be anything mixed in that pasta. But we knew when he was making cabla mabla that he was actually making whatever leftovers we had, but it was this internal joke. And I'll be damned if it wasn't good like all the time. Your dad was basically making Asian stir fry, brother. Yes. yes. <laughs> Wait, yes. why is it called that? Is that is there like some origin to the name of it? It was the joke. Like he was just like making. He, up he the made name up a name. It. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's what I'm making. Because oh we'd be like, gosh. "What are you making?" He's like, "It's cabla mabla." Do you make that now for your kids? <laughs> I don't. I don't make cabla mabla. I have not passed on the. Tradition. You have to do it. You have to do it, or you've got to open up a restaurant called Cabla Mabla. <laughs> That's a good one. Where there's Cabo no Mabla. like, there's no real menu. It's whatever you feel like making that day. People just have to we walk have a couple restaurant tour guests. We're gonna. That's hilarious. Up. That's a great one. That's great. What is your least favorite food? Now, unfortunately, anything with the super lactose in it. Lactose and I broke up a long time ago, so I think that's it for me. Is the milky, cheesy stuff I struggle with. So pardon, it's not a particular type of food. It's just a food with that. Well, well, let's excise that one. But what's the food you would veto? So never mind, you can't have that. But what's something that you still, you could eat? Pork, pork. And I'm not Muslim. It's not religious reasons. Well, you're from Teenage, New Jersey. You went to one of bar mitzvahs, right? Exactly. That's That's right. I was trained early. (laughs) It's sort of in your DNA a little. (laughs) My distaste for pork, though, I'll be with, frankly, is it came later on. When I was about 17 or 18, I studied the 5% Nation of Islam, which is like an offshoot. You hear them called 5%ers. And they were very much into the anti-pork movement. And it's it's actually stuck with me since then. That's so interesting. Yeah. I feel like I got to read it. Because I love bacon and I, I know that's not good. It's not a good thing. <laughs> all right. So. Look, guys, all I would say is it's not any meat. My dad makes this argument and my mom's a semi vegetarian, but I think you got to be all or nothing. You can't say I, I like one. I agree or disagree with one. I think if you're going to oppose them, they're all bad. <laughs> and I say this as yeah. I, it's hard. I'm married to a Chinese American woman. <laughs> 
who is not Sharon, to be clear. But. Right. Well, let me go here then with the pork, though. This even has scarred me from childhood. My mother and father are both from Kentucky. My father's from a town called Beaver Dam, Kentucky, where they ate everything. Bull weevil, he told me once they ate, which is like a rodent almost. My father and his family, and this is not unique to him, but they, they eat chitlings or chitlings. Yeah. Or yeah, in the yeah. store, you'll see them written chitterlings, right. which are as the intestines of pigs. So A, it smells horrible. It will smell up the house for the whole day. I never ate it as a child. I was forced to very young and it made me sick and never again. But my father would make it on New Year's Day, like his ritual. And one year, because of health concerns and this, that, and the other, and how nasty it was for the rest of us, we had like an intervention with my dad. (laughs) (laughs) The last year that you're going to make chitlins. And it actually worked. He stopped doing it. One year, we actually felt bad years later, and we got him some chitlins. So how about that? Nice. Who is someone out there that you would want to interview on a podcast? Ta-Nehisi Coates. Nice. Jay-Z. And most deaf, also now known as Yasin Bey. Yeah. Nice. This, this kid named Chris, this guy named Chris Emden. I have a lot of them. I'd like to speak to a lot of people. All right. Well, start a podcast, yeah, man. Start right. a podcast. <laughs> and final question. What does being a modern minority mean to you? I think it means maybe pushing the boundaries of what we see of a minority, right? And all of the baggage that comes with that, right? Even in the word you're seeing less than, but maybe this modern version, or maybe I am helping to stretch the parameters of what we deem as minorities. I mean, very soon in America, at least, we will not be the minority, right? The black and brown people will be the majority if it's not happening like today, right? That's that's on the rise. But I think a modern version is stretching the parameters of what people see of a minority and changing your life living as a minority. That's great, man. That's so great. Chris, thank you so much for coming back to the show, going deeper on your life. And it's just been a lot of fun catching up, man. Same. Thank you guys for having me. It's always a pleasure. I do like the kind of way it can move all around. And it's not just in one lane. And I showed up today with no expectations. I'm going to just share. And it was great. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us. Hi, mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. Now, here's a preview of our next episode. We're conditioned to want this American dream. You go to college, corporate culture, and then all of a sudden you get promoted to director and then VP and then SVP. That's what I thought success was. And so just trying to navigate, assimilate means stripping myself of who I was, not just what I was wearing, the things that I was really into, but the tone of my voice, the texture of the way I communicate. And it wasn't until I could really separate myself from this unending rat race of trying to climb in a system that really felt not just mentally and emotionally difficult, but just in my body. It was like, this is too much. I don't know if I can keep up with this. That's it for now. I've been Ramin Segal. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Anatomy of an ad. 
subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.